0: Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 432. Lights, Cameron, action. Welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going?
1: Well, I'm currently baking in the record-breaking European temperatures, but aside from that, things are going pretty well.
0: Yeah, I I also experienced that this week, uh, just a few days earlier, as it made its way towards you very slowly, I think, Uh, but it was quite quite unpleasant.
1: (laughs) Tomorrow is supposed to be 42 degrees, I think, so...
0: I don't know whether that
1: convert that to Fahrenheit. It's you'll, about be, you'll be better at that. Yeah. And so I mean, they're evacuating areas of France. You know, it's a national so emergency.
0: Like, I don't, okay, just if, gotta go. if the whole country's hot, where are they evacuating but, them to? Well,
1: well, some of it's setting on fire. That's the real <laughs> issue. Uh, it's a national emergency has been declared in the UK. So I think today and tomorrow were in national emergencies. So it was like you only were going to, supposed to go to work if it was absolutely necessary. Yeah uh, you know, like it's a, it's a real issue, but Hey, there's still climate change deniers out there. I I've enjoyed the social media aspect of that. It was hot when I was a kid, just have an ice cream and, and sit in the sun.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, I have to say it was about 40 or 41 in Porto where I was in Portugal, which again is a little over a hundred, like 103, something like that. And We've talked many times about the difference between the heat in the U.S. versus Europe, because in the U.S. at least anywhere you go, as soon as you step inside, you're going to be hit with massive air conditioning <laughs> right into your face and it feels great. But I had a conference and it was the first day of the conference was the day that it was the hottest. And whenever you go to conference, you you never truly know what the dress code is until after that first day. So I always err on the side of I don't want to look like a douche, so I'll at least wear like dress khakis and like a button shirt that I can like roll up or something like that. Like I won't go with the jacket, but at least a button up shirt, you know, not even like just a polo or something, but you know, and roll it up. And then I got there. And as soon as I walked in, there was people in shorts and sandals and t-shirts. And I was like, Oh yes. It was to the point where I almost thought about like trying to get back to my hotel, (laughs) change and come back. But it was only about a few hours. I was like, I can deal it out. But then after that, it was just, a few sessions for the first day. And then we decided to go get food with my lab. There's about six of us there. And I don't know if anyone who's been to Porto, it's literally built on this massive hill. And the conference is at the river level at the bottom of the hill. And we got out and had to, in 105 degree weather walk up the entire city of Porto to get to where we were going. We got to the restaurant, I probably lost four pounds of sweat it was disgusting
1: That's, it's, a, it's a lot like san francisco right you've yeah. got the hills you've got you've got the trams you've got a bridge that looks a lot like the golden gate bridge
0: yeah there's a there's a lot of parallels made by a student of uh eiffel there you go a, f- you go. a fun fact for all the listeners yep. and there's a bridge made by eiffel next to it pretty cool Um, but yeah, it was, it was hot. And then of course you get into where we went and there wasn't air conditioning, so it doesn't really help very much, but it, I mean, just getting out of the sun and the heat, definitely you you cool down after about four hours, but a lot of Aperol spritzes and ice drinks on that trip for sure.
1: (laughs) Not bad. Well, I I tried to escape the heat on Thursday with former co-host Sam, uh, who decided (laughs) there was. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh there wait real quick ra- side note i uh, my students now listen to the podcast and one of the students asked for what the story was as to why why our third co-host just magically disappeared one day <laughs> <laughs>
1: look their good their guess is as good as mine <laughs> we, we, we won't bore the listeners with that particular story that will be it for another time when there's when we have even less to talk about we'll have the special sam episode Maybe we look. We maybe we can have him on back on for a very quick interview and just grill him, give him the just Spanish question one. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why did you leave? Is your life better now? But he and I and and a, and a couple other people decided to escape the the heat. Uh, it was the fourteenth of July. You know, what internationally gets called Bastille Day, but you know, national holiday here. And uh, so there was good horse racing on at Longchamp. The 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 course that hosts the the Arc de Triomphe race in October. We went along there for some evening racing. And there was also French racing very rarely sells out. So we decided the night before that we were going to do this, probably decided this about 2am the night before. And we all planned on meeting at a bar at four to then go to the races. And when we looked online, the tickets were sold out. I thought to myself, like, they are never really sold out they've just stopped selling them online or whatever we'll get there and we'll be able to talk ourselves talk our way in we get on the there's like a free shuttle that goes from inside of paris to the race courses that you can take it's it's the easiest way tip for anyone who wants to ever go to the racing there it's the by far the easiest way to do it we hopped on the shuttle and because it was the 14th of july they'd organized this massive like dj evening party and so the shuttle the was rammed at the races, after nice. all the races. So the final the final race was at 9.30, and then a DJ set was starting. And, I mean, it was all people aged probably 20 to 25 on this shuttle, mostly all dressed in, like, all white, as if they were going to one of those dinner parties, you know, where you just wear white clothing. Yeah. That was kind of the overall vibe. And then there was us. And we pitched up, and they were not selling tickets there. It was sold out. There was no way in. We tried to talk to a couple of different people. No good. So I was like, "Well, we've just wasted some time trying to come out here." And I was like, "Well, let's see if we can try and convince." There were a couple of people leaving. I was like, "Let's see if we can try and convince some of the people leaving that they could share their tickets with us, and we could go in." And so eventually, I cornered these two Chinese tourists who were leaving, oh, and I <laughs> said to them, "Hey, look, are you leaving?" And they said, "Yeah." I was like, "Are you gone for good?" "Yes." So I was like, "Do you mind? We're trying to get in. We've tried to buy tickets. They're all sold out. This isn't a scam." Could you just screenshot your ticket and send it to me? And I think the girl, I think it was her tickets. The guy was didn't really care much. I think the girl was a little bit more concerned. In the end, they agreed to airdrop me the two tickets. So they airdrop me. And a the few two nudes tickets.
0: in the process. <laughs> <laughs> if it's an airdrop, you have to. That's a requirement with an airdrop. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the bad news was there were three of us. So we've got two tickets, but there's three of us. So I was like, look, we'll just screenshot. The I'll give each one of us will have a screenshot of the tickets, and then we're just gonna try. We're gonna go to the VIP entrance, and then we're just gonna talk our way in. So we walk up to the VIP entrance. Bear in mind, I'm wearing just a t-shirt, a baseball cap, sunglasses, and shorts because it was bowling. oh, you got dressed so up, was, nice. Yeah, there was no suit, there was nothing. So we look out of place, kind of walk up to the VIP entrance. He scans my ticket because uh-uh. it's like once you've left, there's no yeah. supposed to be no returning. And I said, "Hey, you know, we walked out a little bit ago. We just want to get back inside." I was just speaking English. I was like, "I'm not going to even pretend I can speak French here." And I said, "We have just walked outside," and he's like, "Sorry." And I was like, "We walked out, but we're trying to get back inside. We're here with Roger Varian for the the Grand Prix de Paris. We're here for we're here with Roger Varian. We're here with uh, Roger Elder, Varian, Elder
0: r- very well known trainer. <laughs> yeah,
1: horse." <laughs> Pretty famous trainer in in the horse racing world. We're here with Roger Verin, with Elder Eldorov for the Grand Prix de Paris. He just kind of stared at me. Other people were trying to get in. He's like, just go to the side for a second. uh, We kind of wait there. I was like, Sam and the other guy were like, what's going on? I was like, just stay here. We're just going to stay and we're going to see if we just stay. (laughs) And uh, we kind of stand there. And then a second, he's like, why are you here again? He's mostly kind of doing this in French, but I'm just responding in English i was like we were inside he's like when were you inside i was like i don't know we left like an hour ago he's like i don't remember you leaving it's like well we, we left i don't know i was like i didn't realize you couldn't come back in once you've left but we're here with roger varian for the big race at eight we're here with roger varian i just kind of kind of kept repeating this over and over again <laughs> and then eventually he's like okay go in just uh, let the three of us in for free to awesome. the vip section it was it was is nice vip but, uh, is
0: it do you still have to pay for drinks and stuff or what
1: yeah, yeah, we had to pay for everything once ah, we're in. Okay. To be honest with you, there's we made the mistake. They were handing out the actual tickets, printed tickets behind, which for some other people were being let in by people who were coming to pick them up at the gate, who obviously were real VIPs and they were and then they were handing you a physical ticket at that moment in time. I didn't want to push our luck and try and grab 3 of those because that might have seemed a bit weird considering we'd already been inside. supposedly so we just walked in it gives you you have access from there to every area of the race course which i guess on an on another day you wouldn't have had that's a lot it's a lot more cordoned off under some circumstances but there is no sort of real benefit to being in that particular section over another
0: now we really have to get roger varian on to thank him for being able to go. But I don't know how happy he's gonna be considering his horse was a favorite and lost in that race. So we have to yeah, remind him about the fact of a, a nice loss he, he had. But in the, in the grand scheme of things, it was a win because you three guys got to go watch.
1: And look, there's there's a guy who I know in Paris who regularly attends horse racing. The reason why we did this is because he reg- he goes to the Prix de L'Arc and never buys a ticket. Just is Irish turns up. He, he says you he usually need to be suited and booted so he does turn up in looking you know dressed to the nines turns up there and just says he's with an Irish trainer kind of repeats it says he can't speak french just says the name of an Irish trainer over and over again and gets left it let in every year so wow. he was the inspiration behind it i sent him a picture being like well have you ever talked yourself in in an adidas t-shirt and shorts because that's that's a way bigger challenge but i don't want to encourage listeners to try and start pulling this off and at Longchamp and ruin it for the rest of Yeah, because then he won't be
0: able to do it anymore. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You've now screwed him.
1: (laughs) But if you are desperate, yeah, you can talk yourself in, I guess.
0: Nice. Not bad.
1: It it shows you. I just think if you're confident and you refuse to leave, if you're just, without being rude, but like the moment when he said, hey, just let me, I think they are expecting if you're making it up, you might just wander off doing the uh oh, it didn't work" thing. Whereas if you do just hang around, you you put them in a pl- in a position where they get, basically get tired of dealing with you, and yeah. so then it's just like just just go in. Like the three of you are probably not going to ruin this for the rest of us.
0: Kind of like at Royal Ascot when they refused to let us in with the food, and we just kept arguing to the point where they were just like, "All right, forget it, just go." <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, and it is one of my strengths.
0: <laughs> yeah. <I am>, oh.
1: <laughs> and be persistent.
0: As customer service of many different corporations know, you have no problem yeah. being on hold for more than eight hours. Yes.
1: Oh no, I will
0: every day. Oh, call back tomorrow. I will. Don't worry. What time?
1: What time <laughs> do, do you have open? a personal
0: number? You want me to call?
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh no, yeah, I'm 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 very persistent when it comes to that, and my life often requires that I have to be, so it works out well.
0: I mean, I guess. I guess this week was a week of being able to talk yourself into things because for the first time in my life, I had French people actually be nice and and accommodating to me trying to get onto an Air France plane that had officially closed boarding and had shut the door, which I always thought meant as a security purpose, you can't reopen that door once it's officially closed. But there was about six of us who are connecting flight to Charles de Gaulle, which was eventually going to Atlanta, had been delayed. And we sprinted. This is the first time in my life I've ever sprinted through an airport. We sprinted to the airport, like through it, got through security. This is a weird part. You, we, were, we were on the bus. Did
1: you do the O.J. Simpson and like leap over a few things in the way? Like
0: <laughs> I pushed a little kid out of the way at one point. <laughs> he deserved Stabbed, it.
1: Stabbed one of the women with you?
0: <laughs> but so, I mean, if anyone who's been to CDG, it's like an enormous airport. So we had to get on a bus. From the terminal we were at to get to the international terminal and we ran up and the bus was right there and we thought we had like timed it perfect and the one was like no no wrong bus so we had to wait for like another five till the bus came and there was six of us uh, all who were trying to get on the same flight so we're on the bus and out of nowhere one of the guys i wasn't with but he was like the group that we knew we're all going to the same flight gets a phone call and he answers it and he starts talking for a little bit and, he, and you know you can kind of just hear him and he hangs up and he's like that was the gate they just called me wanting to know where i was and said they were about to close the gate but no one else got a phone call so i said to him i was like are you first class and he's like no do you
1: do you have did you all
0: have checked bags i did yeah yeah because i would have thought that would be the only very strange right. but then he he really screwed us this guy because i could kind of hear enough what he was saying but he didn't at one point mention a We're on the bus. We'll literally be there in no more than five minutes. And we've been running like we will run from the bus to it and it won't be more than five minutes. And there's six of us. It's not just me. He didn't say either of those equations, which I think had you said that they would have said like, okay, like you're definitely on the bus. Like you're really there. You're like, just run as fast as you can. We'll get you on. But he didn't say any of that. And and, yeah, it was crazy.
1: Especially if you say there's six of us and we all have checked bags. Because then they're also doing the time calculation of like, well, we have to remove those bags, right? Because they can't take off with your bags on the flight. So there's a moment there where like, well, we're better off waiting, holding for five minutes versus starting this whole process of unloading their bags.
0: Yeah, I, I will say the only downside of it was, so the plane was about to literally take off. They ran in this First off, they told us no, no, no. For like the first three minutes, we convinced them this really nice woman came over. We told her what had happened. We convinced her to go back in. She like reconnected the tunnel, basically got in, got someone to come out and do the tickets. But because everything had been closed, it took forever to get the tickets to go through. So it was probably for the six of us. It probably took 15 to 20 minutes to then get us on the plane. And I was the first one to walk onto the plane and no one was behind me for at least a few minutes. So I walked to the plane and everyone was just staring at me as if like, who's this guy? And he's not even going in first class. He's going to like row 60. (laughs) No one looked happy at me. But then the best is I get to my seat and it's a French couple, uh, probably like, I don't know, like young 20s. And the guy is sitting in my aisle seat and she's in the middle seat. And I walk up, and she's like, "Oh, do you mind taking the window seat?" And I was like, "No, not really. Like, I, I, I like the aisle." And she's like, "Well, like." You she, mean you do mind? What?
1: Well, she said, "Do you mind?" He said, "No, not oh, yeah. really."
0: You <laughs> yes, mean, I yes, do mind. Yes, I do. Yes, I do mind. Yeah. But uh, she's like, "Well, like he he needs the aisle because of his legs." So then, like, I looked at his legs because I, you know, I was like, "Oh, is uh, are your legs like broken or something? Like, do you have like a cast on?" And I looked down, and she was like. No, no, he just needs it because his, his legs are big, so he needs it for his legs. And at this point, I was just done, and I didn't feel like it. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I also need it for my legs, because I get blood clots in my legs, and I have to get up a lot so I don't die. So is it okay if I take the aisle <laughs> <island> seat?
1: <laughs> Which I think we need to explain to the listeners. This isn't the Roger Varian excuse. This is true.
0: This is true. <laughs> but yeah. I, so, like, they didn't even say a word. They just slowly moved over and the woman across the aisle, like, kind of started laughing. Because I was just like, No, oh, what you have? Oh, what? You're six, you're six, two? Oh, my bad. Sorry, dude. Like, but the, annoying <laughs> the thing part is, too, was, right? I said to her, I was like, I get up a lot, I'm gonna get up at least six times. And she slept the entire flight. So like, okay, your boyfriend is a little more uncomfortable. But at the same time, I would have gotten you awake at least six times because I get up a lot.
1: Was she tall? No. So I mean, you also have the thing. You're then a couple and a three. He can kind of use some of. I assume he took the window.
0: No, he stayed in the middle.
1: <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> that's, that's insane.
0: But he wasn't that tall. Nobody, like, he, he regardless. Was maybe two, yeah, two to three inches. Tall. Like, it wasn't it was like six, 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 seven.
1: Yeah, that which is then a consideration. But you might even yeah. get moved when you're that big, because sometimes they even move you to the, like the emergency yeah. row, or, or but why on earth would you sit in the middle like you t- if in that situation you take the aisle knowing that you can then maybe like your left or your right leg depending on the side yeah. of the plane you can kind of angle into the other side get a little bit more room you can lean up against the wall yeah so choosing the aisle is just now maybe she knew she was going to sleep the whole time so she wanted the window but then i don't know do you think they believed you about the blood clots
0: probably not yeah but like it's it's a it's a it's a it's a great statement to pull. Uh, it hasn't it worked. Is. It hasn't worked with trying to upgrade because I've when so when I had my the actual blood clot, and then after I had kind of recovered from it, the next flight I had, I went to customer service. I was like, hey, is there any way I can get one of the upgraded seats, like move up a section, because like I had this blood clot and I'm like little concerned, so I like to like stretch out. And are like no, sorry. <laughs> I was like,
1: All do you right. fly in? Do you fly under Doctor Duca? No,
0: <laughs> but just because I'm a doctor doesn't mean that like <laughs> the blood clots are more serious. <laughs> no,
1: but isn't well? I think there's two things. Uh, here's a I think one that's one of these whether or not it's a myth I don't know, but they say that if you have like if you put Doctor, you're more likely to get an upgrade because if they do have to upgrade a random passenger, then they feel like that. They're kind of rewarding you for being a, a doctor. Like that's <laughs> nice. that's better than some but then I would have also thought if you're then claiming to have a medical condition and they yeah. see you have doctor and in doctor. your name, it's a little bit more credible than Maybe it...
0: I'll start trying that.
1: Oh, you're just making up that you have blood clots. Because again, you're also you're a guy in your thirties in very good shape. You yeah. don't look like you'd be the guy with blood clots.
0: Yeah. It was funny, like I could hear the woman next to me kind of like laughing as they just didn't say anything and shuffled over. <laughs>
1: it's a it's a bold move too
0: yeah like and I then not think then i told our other friend of the podcast furlong about this issue and he almost had a text messaging meltdown because it made him angry that someone <laughs> could take your seat that you paid for and you picked for a specific reason which i agree with him if you if you have big legs and you want an aisle seat pick an aisle seat and if you don't get it then you also have to assume that the person who's picking the aisle seat picked it for a reason.
1: Yeah. I, I just, as much as I like, as I'm happy to kind of embarrass, like ask people for things or be persistent with customer support or people who work somewhere, I could never ask someone unless I was legitimately offering them a better situation. There have been moments when I've said, like when we've I've been on the Eurostar and there's been four of us traveling and it's like three people sitting in the four, and then one other person somewhere and who has two seats themselves. And there it's legitimately like, do you want to sit around the three of us talking for two and a half hours? Or do you want to go and sit by yourself in two seats? Because that's definitely an improvement. You'll still have people say, no, some people are very protective of this is my seat. I will not
0: leave it. This is it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: As if you're trying to scam them. Like, oh, yeah. got you out of your seat. You're off the Eurostar. Sorry. <laughs> hey, conductor, we got him. We got him. He gave up his of seat. It's 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 musical chairs on here. You're gone. Like,
0: yeah. But, I mean, I, I guess if you were a sleeper on a plane, then a window seat wouldn't be the worst thing.
1: I'm 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 a window. I'm an I'm an uh, window person every time.
0: Yeah. I see, know. I'm I, not going to get up much.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm so for you. Maybe it
0: wouldn't have been a bad trade. To go from aisle to window.
1: I mean, I am, you know, 6'2", so I probably would have opted for the aisle to be able to stick my legs out. The only thing is, I'm to- I'm always torn because I probably, I mean, you're on a pretty long, well, you're only on, what, an eight-hour flight? Eight-hour flight. I could probably go the eight hours without getting up. That That wow. can happen.
0: That's amazing.
1: That can definitely happen, but... Then when I want to get up, you do always have that awkward situation of maybe they're asleep. Something like, that. I don't want to wake someone up. Like, I hate that bit of it. So that in that yeah. sense, I'd rather have the window, the aisle, sorry. But at the same time, if they're going to get up, it's a nightmare for me. If Like, if you were sitting next to me and you're getting up six times in the flight and I'm just doing that over and over again, that's, I don't know which one I hate more. So I probably would have taken the window. But,
0: yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think for me, I, I helped them out by taking the aisle because I would have annoyed the shit out of them. But and well, and I have, I of course, because I don't sleep on planes, I watch a decent amount of movies, so we can discuss that at the end of the podcast, some of the newer movies that I watched and uh, how not so great they were. <laughs> okay
1: looking forward to it then a little teaser for the listeners out there yep. stay till the end and you'll get bad movie reviews or several reviews. of them
0: several of them had robert pattinson in them
1: or should i say bad bad movie reviews of bad movies
0: <laughs>
1: but but i guess we could switch on to the the big sporting story of the weekend which was the british open or the open depending the on, open eddie come on yeah yeah i know uh, the open where uh Cameron Smith produced, I mean, one of the greatest back nines of all time to yeah. cl- sort of close down Rory McIlroy, who at one moment looked like it was it was close to around the 13th hole, 12th, 13th hole, starting to look as if it was just going to be a procession for Rory McIlroy. And even the commentary, I was watching it on Sky Sports, they were kind of starting to talk in that way. Nick Faldo, who I think it, when he spoke about one when he won the Open – that he had a sort of four-stroke lead going down the 18th and how that's your dream because then you really get to soak it in and enjoy the experience of St. Andrews. And saying, like, Rory might be, if he really puts his foot down here, he might be able to get into that position. And then all of a sudden, a few holes later, he was going down the 18th needing to sink it from a chip from 20, 25, 30 yards. (laughs) So not quite the the experience, but it was – after, we've had some pretty disappointing major tournaments in golf recently in terms of like not exciting finishes and not big names being involved. but the fact that this had a number of the biggest names in golf all there and thereabouts, plus you know some pretty you know lead changing hands a few times over the course of the final round and some really great golf played it's it's up there in terms of one of the most enjoyable majors in in recent history, I would say.
0: Yeah, and then specifically for the Open, I think that was the third the only the third time uh, a player has shot 64 or better in the final round of the Open and it tied the best overall score uh which was Henrik Stenson in 2016 uh with the 20 under.
1: Yeah, I mean incredible. I I mean undoubtedly one of the greatest rounds of golf that will be played at the Open in the kind of the final round and particularly the back nine when he just he just was on fire for that back nine. But then you also had to feel a little bit sorry for Rory McElroy, who must have in his head, he and Victor Hovland started the day two shots clear, and that lead grew early on to sort of three, four shots. And you almost felt as if it was then match play from about the seventh or eighth hole on. And I don't know if that almost hurt Rory in some respects, in that you get this guy who's, okay, one hole ahead of you, so you're still very aware of what's happening, but the kind of momentum within your own group is shifting. Like Victor Hovland was just falling out of contention, and then all of a sudden, whilst his game is unraveling on the back nine, Rory McIlroy is having to improve his game to try and keep pace with what's happening one hole ahead. But Rory McIlroy became the only player to hold the 54-hole lead at a major, hit every green in regulation in the final round, and not
0: win. Yeah, I mean... So he had a three, uh, a three shot cushion going into the back nine. Um, and even he himself admits, you know, he didn't play poorly. He didn't play great, but you know, it was a decent round and you, you kind of have to think uh, like in the fourth round, a lot of, a lot of times, at least in the recent majors, it's been people who can just hold on in that fourth round. Yeah. And so from a sense, you thought that was going to happen again here. And it just happened that, you know, he admit, he said I got beaten by a better player this week and, um, you know, that last round, that's just an epic last round. And, there's not, and I don't think there's anything you can really do about that sometimes. No, you know, it wasn't, no, it wasn't I'm... as if Rory did his three, like, and you had made the comment, you know, we, we've made the comment throughout the years about Rory always has that one bad round that screws him. And you made in our group chat that, uh, oh. It looks like Rory's bad round is going to be Sunday. And that wasn't the case. It it wasn't a bad round by any means. It wasn't phenomenal. You know, he didn't have that. He was just kind of grinding it out a little bit, but holding on. It wasn't as if he was grinding it out and losing.
1: Yeah. I mean, the big difference too was Cam Smith's putter got really hot. I kind of hate that. That's kind of um, the expression that people like to use, but basically every putt he was getting was sinking. And Rory McIlroy just had a few putts that went really close and just didn't drop. And so it wasn't even as if rory was necessarily taking conservative a conservative approach to holes it's just whereas cam smith was sinking a birdie he was you know missing by a couple of centimeters and getting a par and and that's but to add to that stat rory McIlroy also hit only one bunker the entire tournament he holed out from that bunker he got an eagle from that bunker so he shot two sixty sixes, played a bogey free final round and and still didn't win I mean, it is one of those yeah. where, by the numbers, it will be difficult for him to kind of wrap his head around. Like, he'll look back and think, I could have made that putt, I could have made that putt. But fundamentally, played near-perfect golf, and, yeah, just came up a slightly short.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and kind of getting back to what you were saying with the putts just not dropping. So on the 12th, he missed a birdie putt of 14 feet. Then he just nearly missed that 60-footer on the 13th of the next hole. And then he had, uh, misses at 28 feet on 16 and 22 feet on 17, you know? So yes, those aren't easy putts, but you reverse that with Cameron Smith, who was making like all of those putts and had Rory just yeah. been able to make one or two of those, had they fallen in instead of just being nice lag putts, then, you know, it's it's yeah. a different story.
1: No, exactly. Cam Smith, those were dropping. And if you just flip one each, one of those goes in for Rory and one of them doesn't go in for Cam Smith, then, you know, it's a whole different story but uh but no i mean you know camp smith was popular it, it did feel like almost this was kind of rory's coronation in some ways the 150th open he'd been the he's the kind of the face of the anti live golf movement so already he's pop, he's so popular in the <laughs> he's so popular in the uk anyway but then you throw all of those factors in you know he was just you could you could feel that everyone attending basically wanted him to win and he spoke about also how much it would mean to him to win the 150th open at at St Andrews so and also end his eight year you know run of, of no majors so it was kind of, you know this was really going to put him back probably as the golfer at the top of the pedestal in a way and then also just be a, almost a crowning achievement on his career even though he has so such a long way yet to go And you felt sorry for Cameron Smith because he did play such an incredible final round, whereas it, and it almost felt deflating watching it. And certainly in terms of the crowd, they were appreciative, but you could tell that they didn't want him to win. He's then not helped by the fact that rumors continue to circulate that he is going to jump ship for the live golf tour. And he was asked in his post tournament press conference, if he, you know, if he was going, if he is considering going to the live tour And he did the thing. He kind of did the Brooks Koepka from a couple of weeks ago where he said, Oh, I I just won the British open and you're going to ask me that now.
0: I don't think that's very good. Yeah. He wasn't very happy about it.
1: Yeah. But it wasn't, which,
0: which, you know, you know, when people respond to questions like that, when they know that the answer is something that's going to be controversial, (laughs) Yes.
1: which I don't, I don't understand because you know, like Anyone with common sense is going to know that answering in that way is a maybe leaning towards a yes. It's basically what it, you may as well say, look, I'm enjoying this right now, but it's not something I'm ruling out in the future. And, you know, th- that's all I want to say about it at the moment, but it is something I'm considering. At least that would be a degree of honesty there. But to try and get offended, which is what, you know, it's exactly what Brooks kept did a couple of weeks ago. To try and get offended, and if a week from now we get Cam Smith has joined the Live Golf Tour, it's like it's a legitimate question to be asked. So yeah. just answer it. Like you can't be upset that someone asked you a question that is very much the topic in the world of golf at the moment.
0: Yeah, and at at that point, I guess worth noting every week now we have another defector to the Live Tour, and Sergio Garcia is the newest aging golfer to defect to the Live Golf Tour. You know, no
1: Sergio, no Sergio, Sergio. Had already made the
0: but he like officially announced it uh, on Sunday on the open that he's quitting and going to the live tour. Okay. Yeah.
1: I mean the really, the really big news in terms of is Henrik Stenson. So Henrik Stenson and the the big topic there, he's was supposed to be Europe's Ryder cup captain in the next Ryder cup. He has been stripped of his Ryder cup captaincy. So, you know, that's one now Henrik Stenson, he lost his money in a Ponzi scheme. I remember when he won the open, he spoke about the fact that he lost almost all of his money in a Ponzi scheme. I, I, It might have been Bernie Madoff. I, I can't remember which. It was one of the famous ones, but he lost almost all of his money in that. So he's still gone on to make tons of money since then. I think his estimated net worth is like $25 million. I can maybe at least understand if there is a moment in your life where you've lost all of it through a bad investment, being tempted to take the big payday.
0: So- so he lost all of his money illegally, and now he's going to gain illegal money back. <laughs> yeah. He's just, he's just like trying to, trying to get back on the system. That's all.
1: <laughs> and if, if you know Henrik Stenson and you know his history with investments, you're going to go, hey, Henrik, I heard you just signed a $50 million deal with the Live Golf. I have a great investment for you. <laughs> just, I will guarantee 10% annual returns. No, he's i mean it's it's a blow in some respects to the european tour and 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 obviously pga and european golf in general just because of the fact that it is someone very much choosing the money over the prestige because all these other golfers who yes they might be able to argue we're going to miss out on majors in the future and stuff that's all very speculative but he you know captioning a Ryder cup team is i think by a lot of people considered to be one of the biggest honors you can have in your golfing career so to be willing to pass that up in exchange for a really big check is saying something. But you know, I I don't know. I, I that one surprises me more than a lot of them. But I mean, it was also interesting, right? I mean, the talking point throughout the tournament was just the way in which live golf live golfers were being shunned. They got early tee times on the first. Uh, t- on the first day. So they're kind of they got the, the opening tea times, the six thirty tea times, with the exception of basically Deshambaux and Kepka, who are too big of a names, and, and Dustin Johnson, I think, too big of names to kind of bury, but everyone else just got kind of shoved at like the undesirable tea times. And I did find it weird. I don't know if Live Golf on social media were like posting open scoreboards, but just with the live golfers. They're players. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I think at that moment, I get it. They're kind of trolling at this point, you know, like uh, Patrick Reed wore uh, golfs and uh, shirts and hats adorned with live golf sponsorship and like his team name from the live golf tour. I get it. A bunch of them are just trolling, but there's also a moment where you just need to think to yourselves, are we helping it here or are we just fueling the fire in a way that we may not win. I mean, if they don't get the world ranking points, it seems based on the statements that came out of the head of the RNA, who is one of the people who will decide whether or not they get ranking points. I would be surprised if they do. And I think when we get to 12 months from now, we're probably not going to see any live golf players playing in majors. Like they will not continue to give them exemptions. This just won't happen. So it's kind of weird for me. You, You have to find some sort of common ground to at least allow them to overlook some elements and and it just seems as if they're they're just willing to fire shots back whenever they get the chance
0: yeah it's it's going to be really interesting to see the start of next season what the landscape looks like in terms of how much how many people live golfers that the live tours recruited over and see because i think if it still keeps trickling like this. There's going to be a breaking point where the PGA is going to have to do something, whether that's something is be more drastic or be more uh, like accommodating. I don't know yet, but it's it's going to if I would love to be in that meeting room where like if it's if it still continues like this and, and more and more golfers start to go over if the PGA decides that they want to be way more aggressive and try and encompass like the majors and get them on board or if they kind of just fold into the well, world not fold like I, I mean financially but like kind of give into them a little bit more
1: i think when you see the statements that have come out from the rna i think it's clear that the majors will just say well look we're there's no exemptions here so you're not getting world ranking points too bad like there's no reason for you to be here there's obviously a couple of the and the masters will be the exception because if you're a masters champion, but then you even saw with the RNA um, this year they don't have that same kind of you can't go back and play as a reigning champion forever. But you they do have the champions dinner and then they had a number of events associated with this being the 150th anniversary of the Open. They specifically didn't invite Greg Norman, and then they also supposedly didn't not invite Phil Mickelson, but they suggested he not attend and they agreed, they mutually agreed it was best if he didn't. So you are going to be shunned even if, and then it's like, are you going to continue to turn up to the masters, even if no one really wants you to be there? Like, even if all the other former champions are saying to you, hey, like, go away, we don't want you here. That's going to be an interesting element. And then they're starting to lose sponsorships. So Ian Poulter lost his MasterCard sponsorship. Uh, De- Bryson DeChambeau lost his uh, Bridgestone sponsorship. So like the sponsors, there's a number of other companies too that are cutting ties with them. So then there's the other sort of financial calculation to be done of, I mean, it doesn't matter if you've got $100 you're million, you're, you're, you're yeah. still
0: up, but, you know. But I mean, like that's right now, right? And I think that's them trying to be a little ahead of the game and try and slow it. But if that is unsuccessful and you start to get more and more go over, I don't think that's going to work anymore. Maybe.
1: But then, look, I'm sure the viewing figures. So let's say, let's, this...
0: let's say you have, let's say top 50 players in the world. What yeah. if at next year, half of them are playing in the live tour? You can't afford anymore to say then, oh, they just can't play in majors because you're losing well, half of the best people.
1: I think they will.
0: I don't know. I think that's too much. There's, there's got to be a tipping point, I think. And I think that's what Liv is. The Liv Golf Tour, I think, is trying to just think, like, if we can get to that tipping point, I think they're going to back down.
1: See, I think you're gonna, you've had enough golfers who have drawn a line in the sand. Like, Rory's never switching, right? Yeah, Rory's like, one. <laughs> th- but there's a handful of them. Jo- uh, Jordan Spieth is never doing it. There's a, there's, a, there's a few of them who are never, ever going. And I, and I thought even Tiger Woods' statements are surrounding the Open. I don't know if you saw the interview he gave when he got asked about the Live Golf Tour, where he just said, like, are you going to pass up these opportunities? How special it is to walk down the 18th of Augusta or St. Andrews. And and my advice to these young people would be not to do it. And also that, you know, getting guaranteed money just doesn't seem the right thing for golf. You know, you, you got to go. And I think it's literal words were earn it in the dirt of the way you, you get your prize money. Again, easy for a billionaire to say. What would 17 year old Tiger Woods have said? Maybe something different, although I think based on his competitiveness and the goals he had for his career, probably exactly the same thing. But, you know, Tiger Woods holds influence over a lot of players. And as long as those senior players, as long as you still have Jack Nicholas saying he doesn't like it, as long as you have Tiger Woods saying he doesn't like it, I think that's going to mean a lot. If you grew up with Tiger Woods as your hero, and you have him taking you aside and saying, "You can make that decision if you want to, but I'm not going to have much respect for you if you do it."
0: That could mean. A, <laughs> you know what I mean? That could mean Well, Tiger lot. Woods wants to pay me 10 million then. OK.
1: <laughs> but we're not talking about people on the breadline here, right? We're talking about this is Tiger Woods saying, like, "Look, you can make 10, 15 million dollars a year the right way, or you can make 50 million dollars a year the wrong way. Either way, your life's going to be pretty good. But I think no matter what, you're going to have McElroy, John Rahm's another one, right, who's basically, you know, who's made it very clear. I think Morikawa's kind of been backed into mm-hmm. that position because he had to respond to the speculation that he was leaving. But I can't imagine a scenario where 25 of the legitimate top 50 are gone. And at least not the ones, the same scenario, guys coming towards the end of their careers or something, people will look at that differently. But, and then the sponsorship element is going to be the interesting, how much soft pressure can they apply? How much can the Open turn around to Rolex and go, oh, you want to keep sponsoring the Open? Well, you better not be sponsoring any Live golf live Golfers because we can get another watch brand to sponsor us if you want. Like, which one's worth more? Because there were 60,000 viewers on the Live Golf Tours YouTube stream. And I don't know how many X million viewers there are on the Sunday at the Open in those final holes. Yeah. But you're going to say, which, which exposure <laughs> do you want? You know, but I think that's going to be the interesting thing. In uh, in other news, I guess talking about other champions, we didn't really get time just with your the various trips. We didn't react to to Novak Djokovic winning his fourth straight Wimbledon, retying Nadal at the top of the all time Grand Slam winners list, and uh, you know, a kind of uneventful final in the end. Just Kyrgios ha- winning the first set and then having th- three more sets of basically mental breakdowns. Um, and I think it kind of went the way that almost, in the sense we discussed prior to the final itself, that he just doesn't have the mental fortitude necessary to compete against someone who is not going to be disturbed by the antics on the other side of the net. Like Djokovic, I thought no. the most the most the most telling point. <laughs> now the most telling, and and Kyrgios even said as much right afterwards. He said like I could he he just was that Djokovic's focus was amazing that he just couldn't but I mean I think the most telling point really was there was one moment and it's, it's gone a little bit viral on social media but like Kyrgios faked to do the underarm serve then did a normal serve and you had Djokovic kind of taking a couple steps forward then we're retreating and just like at no moment in time did Djokovic just focus for the point change there was no like oh this is annoying oh he's up to his old tricks it is literally just I'm here to beat him and I don't care what he's doing on that side I'm just going to keep hitting the ball back that's it
0: yeah, well, maybe that's got to do with the fact that they have a an official bromance, according to Novak now,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: which is actually kind of funny that the interview afterwards was pretty funny. So I guess for those who hadn't seen before the match, uh, I think Kyrgios had, had posted something on social media about uh, whoever whoever loses uh, buys the winner drinks at the bar or something like that. Or actually, I think I think Djokovic had said that because originally um, Djokovic had been on the side of Kyrgios when they were interviewing him, saying that, like, oh, he's actually a really good player, and I've never had an issue, and he's been nice to me, blah, blah, blah. And then so then Kyrgios was like, oh, I appreciate it. How about, or something like that.
1: So, okay, and to give the full story, the two of them have hated each other their whole careers. Absolutely. They are, you know, oil and water in terms of their approaches. And I think probably, too, you know, we kind of spoke about it a little bit. Djokovic is the example of someone who has worked, Very, very, very hard. Very hard. All of of the skills that he has, and his fitness is such a big part, and just the approach he takes to everything, and Kyrgios is the reverse. It's just natural talent and kind of flying by the seat of his pants. They hated each other, have had a number of big battles against each other in in the press and stuff. I think the moment when it started to shift slightly was when Kyrgios kind of defended Djokovic during the Australian Open saga with the the vaccination and, and him getting in. And from that moment on, Djokovic's they kind of defended each other in the press over yeah. a number of different issues and kind of developed this little bromance indirectly uh, ever since then. And then playing each other in the final. Yes, it had this offer of the loser buys drinks, and then curiosity had one-up to being like saying, No, we go to a club.
0: Yeah. But, and then and then and then Djokovic's answer uh when he was being interviewed about it, it was pretty funny because he was, you know, because I think uh they had been like, well, you know. Uh, Kyrgios had said that you know we go to the club all night, and he goes, "Well, my wife was next to me while I had my phone out, so I didn't want to say, I didn't want to answer with anything." He's like, "Well, let's go for a few drinks and see where we end up." <laughs> it was like a pretty good answer. I thought that was that was quite humorous.
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, I, and you know, it was fundamentally an uneventful final. It was a one player who was significantly better than the other, just winning, especially after the first set was out of the way, and Kyrios having multiple breakdowns over the course, I mean, just the things he gets annoyed by the way he just sort of takes his anger out on his box for things that just don't make sense.
0: And I don't know who he's taking it out on. Like, I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. Like, I just don't. Is he actually yelling at them in general? Because his girlfriend was in the box the whole week. And seemingly, if that's directed at her, like, why is she still with this guy?
1: (laughs) I think it must be a like a coping mechanism that he has that they've spoken about where it's like, look, I'm going to direct my anger at all of you. And that's how I vent. And they must all accept this because, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, <laughs> if I was sitting sense. watching, if if I was attending Wimbledon watching you, and you just were turning around to me and be like, "You're just gonna sit there, Eddie. You're just gonna fucking sit there." You know, and
0: I'd be like, "Whoa, okay, I think I need yeah. to yeah. leave." Yeah. Oh, like, now you're gonna get up and clap. Now you're gonna where uh, were you all match? Now you're gonna get up and clap. Don't even bother. Don't even do it. Like Jesus.
1: So yeah, I think they must have had discussions about this, but and then it was just so telling, you know he. It was both endearing in when, he, in his, when he was speaking afterwards about how much it meant to him to make a final and how he thought he'd never get there and how much it would have meant to him to have won Wimbledon, that it would have put him into this, it, would have, it kind of would have proven him forever, you know, kind of put him into an elite status of you've won Wimbledon, well then that justifies your existence almost. And that was kind of nice to hear someone saying where you see how much it would have meant to him. But then at the same time with him just saying, I'll probably never get back here. Then also in his post-match press conference saying he almost didn't want to get back again because he was just so tired. Like yeah. how how hard it is to play tennis every couple of days. What I did find interesting, he did say he felt like not playing in the semifinal had hurt him. That it had hurt his rhythm slightly. I think he would have lost anyway. And I think if he'd played a healthy Nadal, he would have just lost to a nadal in the semi so yeah he can he can think of it as a fortunate path to a final but, then I, but just his whole mental approach is just not yeah. right
0: no you're right i mean it's extremely telling because the exact question was you know now that you've been here does this fuel you to want to be back and his answer was like no this was exhausting and I, there was no one else on the planet that if they were asked that question they would they wouldn't have responded with I'm super disappointed right now, but I'm already thinking about next year, I'm going to be back here and I'm going to like revenge this loss and I'm going to win. And now I know what it takes to be a winner and I know I have what it takes and I just didn't play the best today. But for him to be, yeah. for him to literally say, no, I don't want to be back here. This is exhausting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like, it's amazing. And, and also he, he almost insult, cause in the post-match press conference, even none of you in this room even know how hard it is to get to the finals or, you know, so you're then insulting the journalists. In that respect of like, but, but yeah, it's just surprising to me that you don't, and again, you're right. He could have put a positive spin. He could have been to be honest with you right here, right now. No, I'm exhausted and I probably never want to do this again, but I know a couple of days from now, this is just going to m- make me want to be back here even more because I realized how special it is and how much I've enjoyed these past two weeks. You know, an answer like that would have been the honesty of the moment. But then I also thought what was even more telling he then got asked, in in kind of adding on to whether or not this fueled his commitment to making it back he then said they said well do you think you would have been more determined to get back if you would won and he said oh no honestly if i'd won then i would have i would have like done it so why would i even need to get back that's that's like one of the more revealing statements too from a freshman athlete to just think yeah i mean once i've won who would care about winning more than once which I guess is, you know, with Nick you get full honesty and you can kind of try and find some logic behind the statements. But from someone who has made it to an elite level of sport, it's just stunning to think, yeah, yeah, I just check off one Wimbledon and I may as well retire at that point. Why would I ever want to try and win a second one? Why would I want to try? I mean, he even said it would have been hard for him to motivate himself for non-majors from that point on, because how could you kind of get worked up for like an ATP tournament if you've just won Wimbledon? I mean, it's it's kind of
0: weird. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess not, not all athletes have that motivation. No. No.
1: I mean, that is the thing that separates a lot of them, and with him we see it. The reverse, switching sports slightly, I don't know if you saw Jose Mourinho talking about a man who certainly doesn't lack confidence or motivation or a willingness to get back to things time and time again and prove people wrong. He got a new tattoo, that he revealed a couple of days ago. And he had, because he became the first manager to win all of UEFA's three club competitions because uh, the Europa Conference League debuted last season and he won it with Roma, having previously won the Europa League and the Champions League. He got a tattoo of the three trophies on his right arm. So (laughs) just, just immediately just first one. He might be the last one for a long time because it's such a like bizarre set of circumstances that I have to allow you to win all three.
0: Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. I guess if we're going to do some, some little tidbits of sports, I saw an interesting one, Eddie, that I thought uh, you might enjoy. So we, we talked a few times about, you know, celebrating with the Stanley cup and that you'd want to drink beer out of the Stanley cup uh, defenseman, Jack Johnson, with his day with the Stanley Cup, took it back to his hometown. And he did, Eddie, what I think you also might appreciate. They went up for lunch and brought the cup to lunch and had it out at the bar and were drinking and eating. And then he was with all of his family and his kids, and they walked across the street to the local ice cream store and asked them to fill that puppy up with ice cream and had everyone just scoop out ice cream out of the Stanley No, cell. that's gross. That's <laughs> gross it's no different than drinking there's no difference
1: it isn't but i am willing to drink alcohol out of sometimes occasionally disgusting containers or situations because it's but like you won't eat spirit. a
0: frozen liquid out of it it's literally no. still liquid that's just frozen
1: doesn't matter <laughs> so doesn't, if you like if, it,
0: if in, wait so if just fine, instead of like uh, like an alcoholic beverage, if it were like a frozen margarita, you wouldn't drink that out of the cup? No. <laughs> I'll
1: put it this way. A fly can f- fly into my beer and I can fish it out and it kind of doesn't like push put me off my beer at all. Or, you know, I've been in like gr- some grass can fly into your drink or a little bit of dirt even. Hell, we were Royal Ascot and Vasilis Ashton are a drink and I still drank some of it. But if the same things happen to my food, I'm much more put off eating it. Like if I got an ice cream and there was a little bit of dirt in the ice cream, I'd be, I'd be like, Mom, we're not eating this ice cream. Whereas if it was a beer, I'd be like, ah, will be okay. That's funny. <laughs> That'll be all right, not wasting a beer. That's so, so weird. Considering that the Stanley Cup wouldn't have been, if it had just been cleaned.
0: I'm sure they, they cleaned it, was, it before they just scooped ice cream into
1: it. How do you think they cleaned it in the restaurant, poured some water in it and tipped it out?
0: Yeah, just you know just what I mean? sprayed like, it, just sprayed it down and wiped it out.
1: If it was the start of the day and it was pristine, then maybe, <laughs> maybe I, then I'll go for the ice cream out of it. But no, if it's also just the idea of everyone again, it's just weird, weird things. The idea of you everyone don't share, scooping you don't
0: share your Sunday. You're not everyone a scooping share.
1: ice cream out of it. It would just be to me that's a little gross. Versus everyone taking a sip of something doesn't gross me out at all.
0: So random. If anything, I feel like the sipping will be worse because there's so much backwash. Well,
1: I, I mean, I don't think there's that much. I'm not like swirling and stuff. I'm like, you know, the way you drink out of the Stanley Cup is you had to put back a couple mouthfuls before you actually swallow. But yeah. no, um, yeah, no, I couldn't do that. I did know Cam Smith, you know, his statement after he won is he wanted to see how many beers could fit in the claret jug. He estimated two cans. So he said he thought he would be drinking twelve claret jugs. Wow, that was his—that's a high estimate. I mean, I guess it depends what you're drinking. I think if I'd just won the Open, I could eat. I'm I'm sinking back twenty beers, no problem.
0: Yeah, but that night, because you're also going to be very tired. That's going to play
1: into. I don't think you're getting tired for a long time.
0: Oh, I don't know. That's a long day. I mean, the whole day. Then you'd have to do like three hours of interviews after. You're probably riding that emotional high. It's probably draining.
1: I don't think. I don't think I'm sleeping for at least twenty hours. Like twenty that, hours after
0: I, you've won. Yeah,
1: I, I'm sinking the putt on the 18th, and the the clock is starting, and it's like <laughs> <laughs> bedtime is tomorrow at 2 p.m. Speaking of food, before we transition to your the movie talk you teased, I don't know if I saw but KFC are bringing back chicken nuggets.
0: Wow. So, I didn't even know KFC had chicken nuggets.
1: So this has caused a little controversy because a number of people, including Dan Darren Ravel, who loves to break pointless news on the internet, said that KFC was announcing it will sell chicken nuggets for the first time, and the internet just... Told him he was wrong. Said no, definitely sold chicken nuggets in the 80s and 90s. People linked to a number of KFC commercials, so there was like no doubt about the fact that they sold chicken nuggets (laughs) in the 80s and 90s. The crazy thing to me is, I mean, I obviously have to now doubt his information about the fact that KFC had never sold chicken nuggets before. But then he said McDonald's created the chicken nugget in 1979. I don't know why, but that it blows my mind that the chicken nugget didn't exist
0: before 1979. So I, yeah, I think it was the six. I'm seeing sixties here.
1: Okay, so just everything he said was wrong. <laughs> Even the sixties. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? But if you legitimately asked me when was the chicken nugget invented, the nugget was invented
0: is tr- in the 1950s by Robert C. Baker, a food science professor at Cornell. Okay, a bite-sized piece of chicken coated in batter and deep fried, originally called the chicken crispy. Maybe they were the first to sell it. To sell them kind of widespread distributor of chicken nuggets. But so does that – that part would also include the chicken tender because this is to me the big distinction between the nugget and the tender is the tender is actually one piece of meat that's battered and fried whereas a nugget is just like a bunch of – Random pieces of chicken squished into a a distinct shape and battered and fried.
1: The chicken tender must have existed way before that. I don't know. Because this is my issue. Like the chicken Kiev, as it gets called, like, you know, just a breast, for example, that's breaded. That must have existed for, I'm not going to say forever, literally, but I mean, (laughs) it must have existed before the 20th century. It cannot be we got to the 20th century before someone said, Hey, you know what we should do? We should bread some of that chicken and fry it. It's just not believable.
0: But that's the other thing too is, you're. It's a tough distinction because fried chicken has probably been around for a while. But at what yeah. point do you do you call fried chicken and the chicken nugget different?
1: Well, take KFC. They sell popcorn chicken. What's oh, the I distinction between my dude too? <laughs> What's the distinction between popcorn chicken and chicken nugget? I know there is a distinction. Like I can. I can undoubtedly tell the difference, but fundamentally, if you tried to, to describe the two, they're the same thing, right? I mean, I do guess the 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 coating is different. Like you, the batter that you're going to put yeah. in is is probably the distinction. Like the same with fried chicken is different to what you're putting a chicken nugget in, which might be breaded or whatever. But still, I don't know. It just we
0: should get a we should get a. a- Chicken historian on uh, of, <laughs> a
1: historian of fr- of, of breaded of, and fried of food, chicken.
0: Of, yes, a fried chicken historian on to discuss these very important topics.
1: It's just one of those weird things. Like if you told me that my parents were born before the chicken nugget existed, that seems like a crazy statement. But based on his original statement of that McDonald's invented like in 1979. It's like, well, my parents not only were born, you know, they were not far off having their first child. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yet, and yet the chicken nugget, they like it's like my grandmother died without ever wearing jeans. Always is that bl- true? always blew my Yeah, true. Always blew my mind.
0: Wow. That is In her, she
1: never, never used a computer and never wore jeans. Computer is a little bit iffy. She used like
0: tablets and stuff but never like a, a desktop computer computer's or a laptop. She, was, she was actually number two with alan turing <laughs> <laughs> she was she, she was his postdoc at the time <laughs>
1: she, well she definitely used early computers like huge big ones and then she did l- use like smaller computers like when she did a crossword puzzle she had stuff that she used and stuff but she never sat down at a desktop computer and used it for example or a laptop and it's just, you know, what a crazy world we live in. Seems so ubiquitous. Chicken nugget. I can't imagine my life without computers, jeans, and chicken nuggets, but there's people who've, who've managed to do it.
0: <laughs> uh, I And I'll, I guess, speaking of, I love these terrible transitions we're doing, of uh, arbitrary uh, dates and numbers. Did you see that in the track and field world championships, uh, Devin Allen, who's a 110 meter hurdler for the United States was DQ'd uh, for the start, and the way that the they DQ from the start, it's an automatic time, like a reaction time based off of when the the gun goes off, and if you're under 0.1 seconds from the time the gun gets off to when your foot, like your reaction of the foot initially, they can they can like test it off the um, the blocks, you're DQ'd, and he was. Measured at point nine, point zero nine nine nine, and he was DQ'd because he was this us under the point one, and people were like going insane, because how I can saw. you make a distinction from point point one to point oh nine nine? Like you you fit, like you can't even wrap your head around how small the you, time you, that is.
1: As a human, no. As a computer, yes.
0: But like what's... And- but why is that the arbitrary cutoff? You know, like so, the,
1: it's not arbitrary. It's based on what they say the human reaction speed is. So they basically said it is impossible for a human to react to something faster than that. And they've even put in an element like there is a uh, a buffer being put into that. So they're basically saying you cannot tell us that human that he heard the gun and moved. So okay, maybe he was guessing whatever he was doing, and he got really really close. To being to nailing it, but based on unless he is a superhuman of the type we've never seen before, it is impossible for him to have reacted to the gun.
0: But the argument is is that it it it's um I think it's almost inconceivable. I get it; you have to have a limit, right? But it's almost inconceivable that his reaction time of .001 second was that different that it. Cannot happen. Do you see but, what I'm saying? But you have to
1: have the cutoff point at some point, and otherwise, I get it.
0: You have to have it somewhere.
1: And in particular, right, since they changed the way you get disqualified, with you know, before you used to be able to get what two full starts individually, and then they started shifting it to two full starts per race. You know, and I is that I think that's still the system, right? Like if the second full start, or is it now one full start and you're done regardless? One and done. Yeah, because.
0: You know, that was the biggest bullshit rule ever. The first one was a warning, and then the second was a deal. Yeah. Like, why would you not then try and, well, and jump it on the, in the first one?
1: Well, in particular, too, I think if you're an outsider, just do the false start, just to not even try and jump it, just in the hope that then, well, second time around, I can be conservative and maybe one of these guys who's actually faster than me will get disqualified. Like, I'll just add, like, I'm not going to beat Usain Bolt, so yeah. I may as well just throw this, play this, like extra card I've got and go, "Hey, maybe Usain Bolt will just shift his foot slightly too soon and Usain Bolt's out of the race." Like I got a much better chance of that happening than I have of beating him over 100 meters. Yeah, it's crazy. Speaking of which though, another person who I have a love-hate love-hate relationship with, not to plug another podcast, but Malcolm Gladwell, who as you know, I'm not always the biggest fan of. I have been critical of him on the podcast previously. I find some of his like sometimes he's a sort of caricature of himself. Well, I think he's often a caric- caricature of himself and just bastardizes a lot of really good academic work to turn it into bestsellers. But he has a new podcast out called Sprint City, and it's all about the sort of origins of the modern approach to uh, sprinting. And it's really, really interesting. Yeah, it's really, really, because wow. you know, he loves I running.
0: Yeah, I thought it was going to be something with his new season of revisionist history, which so far has not been very good.
1: <laughs> this no, he's done with that. He's run the he's run the course with the original original concept. The conceit of a revisionist history was good, and then now he's just he's not that revising be his anything.
0: New season of revisionist history is that he's no it's longer going, doing revisionist history. <laughs>
1: going back to fix why we were wrong he be about su- revisionist history. Super,
0: super meta. <laughs>
1: yeah (laughs) but no sprint city it's six episodes i think it's it's not it's not long but it basically goes into there's i mean there's a whole element to it about the sort of racial inequalities within the track and field the sport of track and field in the 30s 40s 50s 60s so that's interesting kind of the history of all of that it's sort of building up to the the mexico olympics with the protests so sort of also looking at the role that social protest in sports um and kind of how that was the first example of of real sort of a real demonstration within a sport but yeah i would recommend it if you have any interest in the kind of the history of sports and all of that it's actually a, a interesting podcast nice i'll definitely listen to that
0: i'm getting and tired talking of my about current podcasts
1: <laughs> yeah but I mean, do that, obviously, if you're listening to this, do that once you finish this episode. But um, <laughs> the, so talking about social protests, I guess our last sporting topic, maybe before we switch on to your movie reviews. I don't know if you've seen, but the Tour de France has been plagued by protests, environmental protests, uh, climate change protesters kind of getting onto the road and blocking the stages, uh, which it's been interesting to see. It's happened multiple times now. It's been interesting to see. There was the initial, like I watched the stages live and at first the commentators were very, very critical. Both of the fact that A, you're putting the riders at risk. I do understand that the Tour de France is like, it's a little bit different between running on a football pitch. Like these are cyclists going at high speed. And so if you make them have to change direction or whatever, and a guy crashes and breaks a bone, that's a little bit different to just stopping a game while you run onto a pitch. Like it is not at all the same. But then them talking about how this... This, like, uh, you know, the initial spiel spiel coming out of them was kind of also one the thing that's special about the Tour de France is that you do have this immediate access to the cyclists. And if you start having all these protests, they're going to have to put barriers up everywhere out of security concerns. And this will ruin the spirit of the Tour de France. And on top of it, too, it's if your issue is climate change, then isn't this such a wonderful advertisement for the bike and and, like a environmentally friendly uh, form of, tra- of
0: travel what a spin yeah, yeah. In a, really, yeah, with companies that are spending exorbitant amounts of money to have like full teams there to service yeah. the bikes and the players in crazy ways that are not uh, climate change friendly in any sense of the way yeah and, and
1: to his credit one of the other commentators at that point said well you and I did we were leaving the stage the, yesterday and, and we were biking away from the stage and we both commented on, wow, so many cars and trucks follow each of these teams. This is just a mass of humanity and just such a huge number. Like the, the carbon footprint of the tour itself is enormous, even if the thing it's actually putting front and center is something that has no carbon impact at all. But yeah, I, to me, the thing that's a little bit bizarre is I don't think this has got much coverage at all. I think the only people who are aware that there have been protests at the Tour de France are people who watch the Tour de France, which as far as popular sports in the world go, is not that many. I understand too, because of the nature of the, of the, as they touched on, there's no barricades or anything really easy to do the protest. You just walk up to a road and at a certain moment in time, just step onto the road, like no planning goes into it fundamentally. But it does seem like a waste if you're going to get yourself arrested and even if they don't press charges, just the hassle of the day, they had to stop one stage for about, I don't know, 15 minutes because there were time gaps and they were removing the protesters and they had to just stop all the cyclists. It does seem like you'd be better off just demonstrating at a, a football match somewhere. you get way more coverage.
0: I was actually watching some of the Tour de France this week as uh, <laughs> I mean, one of the few things on in the afternoon in Europe. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean it's a downtime. It's it's crazy, right? And and it's in front of the sports, people do say it's boring. Once you start to appreciate the the kind of the intricacies and the tactics that go into it, it is much more interesting. And just to imagine, I mean, in the current climate, and by that I mean forty two degrees to be doing what they're doing is just unbelievable. I can barely move around my apartment, so I can't imagine getting up in the morning and going, Oh, you know what I'm gonna do today? cycle for 189 kilometers, some of which is at a 24% incline. Like that's, that's just my day. Like I can't, the, the mental strength or, you know, approach it takes. I, I can't even imagine it.
0: Crazy. Yeah. I The, the amount of fluids they must have to go through. And I don't like, it has to be legal. I don't know. I, I'm wondering if they're all just getting IV hookups after the race because I'm I know sure part of that. that is like very questionable because of the whole Lance Armstrong the, 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 getting the IVs of blood. But at the same time at the, at, if you are not getting IV fluids after that race, there is no way you can fully recover from the amount of sweat and amount of uh, water you've lost just from natural rehydration it's that quickly to be able to get back to what you need to be for the next race.
1: Yeah. Especially cause the things that they drink, are bizarre sometimes right like the number of times you see them drinking a coke over the course of the stage is interesting like because they obviously need the sugar but so like little and it's always the like the airplane cans of coke that they're drinking yeah i always find that interesting they're like the only people buying them aside from airlines
0: hey and actually then, i we had a discussion with this with uh with furlong today i love buying those cans because i don't, i don't like I just if I want a soda, I just kind of want a little bit of soda. That's just enough, just a just a good enough of a hit to satisfy it, and you don't waste it.
1: And they don't go flat. That's the other benefit you have to them. But yeah, no, that was interesting. And then a lot of the times they're drinking San Pellegrino when they finish the stage. That bit I've also found interesting. Like they're finishing a stage and then just drinking big bottles of San Pellegrino, which I wouldn't have thought was an ideal for, way to rehydrate yourself. But and I also remember. This might have been wrong sports science, but I remember the England football team for a while, they were banned from drinking sparkling water, fizzy water, because they were basically told that the carbonation in the water means that it, like, it blocks your pores, kind of, somehow. It was like making, you're, you're rehydrating through the, the water itself, but it's, it's preventing, yourself, preventing you from properly cooling yourself down afterwards. I don't know, but I remember when England went to the 2000, and, I think 10 world. Right. I know, but but (laughs) legitimately, I remember England going to a football world cup and not being allowed to drink sparkling water. All right. Movie review time. I'm going to guess you watched the Batman,
0: which I I did watch the Batman. I haven't seen. So. So I guess the bad part about this is you're watching planes on movies, which on Air France, the screen is a very nice screen
1: or movies on planes. Even
0: Oh, I'm watching planes on movies. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of movies that had planes in them,
1: just flights over and over again.
0: <laughs> well, in France, they love to have. They have like six different cameras on their plane, and on like the shared screens in the front of each section, they just show the entire time like the the different views of the plane. And it's yeah. like, okay, we get it—the the takeoff I, and the landing—that's cool. But when I'm all the way up there, I don't need to see the back of the plane.
1: I do wonder not to be morbid and like touch wood on this. Do you think if something starts to go wrong with the plane, they shut that down? No. You know what I mean? Like how I don't quickly have they have the time if they go, Oh, fire an engine too. And it's just like, everyone is just fixated on, Oh my God, that's not supposed to be happening.
0: So yeah, I watched the Batman. It was good. Better. Not as good as the Christopher Nolan ones. I don't think, but very different, a lot more dark, even though the Christopher Nolan ones were dark, it was, Mm. it, it was more dark, almost in kind of like how the Joker was like more of just like a dark commentary on humanity a little bit. Uh, it was good. He was, he was good. I like Robert Pattinson. I've never had an issue with him. I think he did what he had to do to make millions and millions of dollars, you know, and, and he's actually a very good actor. I mean, he's in a lot of other stuff, a lot of indie stuff and he's really good in it. Um, I guess that's the issue with him, right? Is that he is a legitimate actor and
1: he burst onto the scene playing this teen heartthrob and then tried to transition and he tried to transition really quickly. He A, tried to distance himself from Twilight and kind of shit on it in the process. I think that was part of the issue is it wasn't, hey, Look, I just did that. You know, that was actually pretty enjoyable. I appreciate how big it was and the platform that it's given to me, but I don't want to play that type of role my entire career and I want to do kind of more serious things. The fact that it was really much like that's that guy almost doesn't exist anymore. Like, I will not acknowledge that I was in that huge franchise of movies,
0: yeah. It, but the craziest part to me still is uh Colin Farrell playing the penguin because it, I, I mean, you. There's, if you told me that was him and I didn't know and didn't know that going in, there's no way I would believe you. It looks nothing like him. The amount of prosthetics he must have had on to have that role is crazy. Um, and he was good. He, he played that pretty well. The issue I have with it, it was not a true superhero movie in the sense that I didn't get a great feel from the villain. It was kind of like the, the vil- it wasn't just like superhero versus villain. You know, it wasn't very cut and dry. It, it was it was it was strange in that sense. They tried to make it a little too much, uh, but it was good. It was a lot better, actually, I think, than some of the last Marvel movies, to be honest with you, which I'm a huge Marvel well, fan. and They've just kind of been you don't want to get me lately. started on that. Yeah, but I also watched The Ambulance, the Michael Bay <laughs> movie. Oh no, that looks so terrible. Michael Bay. It is unreal. just things exploding. It's crazy. It makes no fucking sense. It literally within 10 minutes the movie is like gone. Like that's it. It's we're full throttle in the first 10 minutes. It's crazy. They the character development is literally 5 minutes in the first scene. And with with the main character and his wife and then five minutes with the main character and his supposed brother, Jake Gyllenhaal. And then that's the only character <laughs> development and then it's just like, boom. This is a straight action movie. And it's so ridiculous. It's so over the top. It's unreal.
1: Why Why do you think, because this puzzled me, I've only ever seen the trailers for it. Do you think like Jake Gyllenhaal lost a bet to Michael Bay or something? I don't understand why he's, why in, he's in it. Yeah. as, a, as someone who, would cash out. I guess so. But as someone who has established himself as a legitimate actor, like the Robert Pattinson idea, like uh, I think most people say Jake Gyllenhaal, good actor, in good films for the most part. You would have thought there would be an easier way for him, even as a money grab, a better money grab he could do. But I don't know. Maybe the pandemic was hard on him and he really just – he needed the cash injection.
0: And I guess uh... – Michael Bay has some hits. I think you can you can strike gold and get lucky. Now they're not critically acclaimed movies, but they're hits, right? I mean, they're box office Armageddon successes. is a hit. Yeah. I love Armageddon. Not the greatest movie, but it's a hit and people still talk about the movie. So, you know, you get into one of those and you know maybe you get lucky. But, you know, Bad Boys too. <laughs> I, I Bad love Bad Boys too. It's a hit. I love
1: I love that you say people still talk about the movie as if you're walking into bars and people are like, hey, Armageddon. Oh,
0: people still quote Armageddon all the time.
1: I mean, I wouldn't say all the time. What's a quote from Armageddon you've heard recently?
0: Um, hmm. Good question. Oh, I heard the, the one about the permission to shake the hand of the daughter of the bravest man I have ever met. <laughs> Colonel Sharp. Great well, quote.
1: Well, how did you hear that? What was the context for this?
0: I don't remember. I think it was just uh, like we were just joking as friends, quoting yeah. random So it was movies, you. And now you said popped it. up.
1: I mean, okay, let's go through. We've done it before. Sometimes this has been edited out. We go through Michael Bay movies and we'll go just a yay or nay. Bad boys.
0: Wait, wait. Yeah, yay or nay in what sense? Good movie. Just good movie. I don't think any of them are particularly good <laughs> movies. But do I, do I like them? Like... Do I think they're good? Do you like? Do them? I like them. Yeah. Did, did yes.
1: you enjoy the viewing experience?
0: Bad yes. Boys. Yes. The Rock. Absolutely. Armageddon. Absolutely. Pearl Harbor. Uh, not so much. <laughs> not one of my favorites. Uh, Bad Boys Two. That is a classic.
1: <laughs> okay, so 2003. I think it goes rapidly downhill from
0: here. It does. The Island. The Island. The island, that's the one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio?
1: No, no, that's Shutter Island. That's that's
0: That's Shutter Island. That's
1: a decent movie. This is with Ewan McGregor
0: and uh, Scarlett Johansson. Oh, yes, that (laughs) movie is terrible. Two of my favorite people.
1: Then we get to the three Transformers. Well, three Transformers in a row. Transformers, Transformers, two and three.
0: The first one is Watchable. I don't particularly enjoy it, but I've watched it. The second two are—I've un- stopped both of them. I couldn't watch them. Pain and gain. Pain and gain. Pain and gain's okay. I've only—I've actually ever seen it once.
1: It has—it has its moments. It's not good, yeah. but it's not terrible. Then there's Transformers:
0: Age of Extinction.
1: No. So, <laughs> Thirteen hours. The Secret Soldiers of
0: Benghazi. No, anytime Krasinski is one of the main leads, right? That's his movie. <laughs> yeah. No good
1: transformers the last night nope six underground which i don't think i've ever even heard of it has ryan that's reynolds the
0: netflix one with ryan reynolds it's a netflix oh. mo- it's a made to netflix movie not good oh. it was very good yeah, and, as... and and then ambulance right and then ambulance yeah.
1: it's it's not a no, yeah I mean, he's had he, some
0: he dropped the cliff after after bad boys 2 that was his last good one
1: in terms of good movies and then in terms of box office hits even you're kind of living off Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, Transformers, I would guess. It's as, as like real box office successes. Like I'm yeah. sure the Rock, the Rock did well in the box office, but not like astronomically well. Bad Boys probably did well in the box office, but not astronomically well. So if you're Jake Gyllenhaal, you're basically you're you're getting the script for Ambulance and saying to yourself, is this Transformers?
0: And like his character in the movie is, it's insane. I mean, it's, it's such a, just a outrageously strange character. It was, oh man. And they did a lot of drone footage in it. And I think that was, he did that purposely to kind of be like, oh, look how cool this is all this, you know, now we can do all this cool stuff with the drones and it was bad. Like it didn't add to the movie at all. It was just random scenes where they would fly down buildings and then like up towards the scene. And I know he thought it was so cool. And it just wasn't. It was not. that. Although
1: at the moment, I hate to say, Ambulance is tied with The Rock as the Michael Bay movie with the highest rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. With 68%. So not even that good. (laughs) It was not very good. He doesn't have that many movies, but he's got two in the teens. So two of the Transformers, three of the Transformers movies are fifteen percent, eighteen percent, and twenty percent. Bad Boys Two, which you loved, is twenty three percent. So you are in the you are in the minority there. Pain and Gain, no, no, no.
0: I will say Bad Boys Two is not a good movie, but it is really fun to watch. It is so the one scene where they go and shoot and shoot out like the I don't even know who they are. They're like the the gang towards the beginning. And they're like shooting through the walls for twenty five minutes straight. The scene is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and then I watched um, Lost City, which was the uh, who the heck is it? Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock rom com action adventure where they like they're like treasure hunters. I don't know if I've even heard of this. It w- was let me put it this way: it's better than ambulance. I would be surprised. I bet you the Rotten Tomato score on that is surprisingly high. Yeah,
1: it's seventy nine percent.
0: Yeah, I could hundred percent see it. People love Sandra Bullock for some reason. i mean not, not that I don't like her, but like whenever she has a movie, it's always. It's really a really
1: good cast.
0: Movie. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a decent movie. Yeah, I'd I mean,
1: da- Daniel Radcliffe.
0: Yeah, and they're all they're they're all funny in it because they know it's one of those movies where they're cast. Because of who they are, kind of. Okay. Like when Brad Pitt's in it, it's hysterical that it's Brad Pitt, and it's really funny. Like the Brad Pitt scenes are really funny. Right. Yeah, I, I would suggest that if you if you if if you're in in a relationship and you want a common movie to watch, it was good. What and if you're single it. and alone? Eh, you can still watch it. Maybe gives <laughs> you hope. <laughs> Gives you something to work towards. Uh, then I watched John Wick Two because I've never seen. I only saw the first one. It was just as good as the first one, but the killing scenes are just—they're awesome. They're so—they're so outrageous. Yeah. It's—it is what it is.
1: So in this movie, though, not to go, but not to dwell on Lost City, is there a couple, Channing Tatum and and Sandra Bullock?
0: No. Uh, so she's a author, and he is the model for the cover of her books. So kind okay. of like a Fabio, almost. Do
1: did, did they develop a relationship over the course of the movie? Oh,
0: I don't want to spoil it, but of course. <laughs> I
1: mean, do they acknowledge the age gap?
0: Um, Not particularly, no.
1: Because it must be a pretty significant...
0: He's older than you think he is, though. So is she. <laughs>
1: Channing Tatum is forty two. That's true. Yeah.
0: That's... he is much older than people think he is. She's fifty-seven. Yeah. It is a it is a big age gap. And then I ended with Tenet.
1: Oh god, that nightmare. Did you did you even remotely enjoy it or just
0: Yeah. It's tough because I love Christopher Nolan. Yeah, but it's but...
1: Christopher Nolan out Christopher Nolan himself
0: yes he i get he has a thing with time i get it he's obsessed with time like almost all of his movies have some crazy time component in it and he's he's always you know trying to play with it that's fine and that's cool and i i think that is a neat idea but this movie got to the point where if you did not listen to every single line that was said in this movie you were like were lost there was no just dialogue to develop the characters or develop the scene or plot it was like every every word that someone said was like required for you to comprehend what was going on in this whole big scheme that he had so like, and i get it. i'm on a plane so maybe it's a little more difficult like i have good headphones like noise canceling so like wasn't that but if you're not paying so much attention to what they're saying and trying to decipher what they're saying at the same time as they're saying it you start get to get lost and i get it like oh The third and fourth time you watch it, you finally get it. But is that the way to make a movie that you have to watch it four fucking times to understand it? Well, yeah,
1: you've either gotta be doing that or you have to be like going on Reddit. I wanna read theories about the movie I just watched. Oh my god, okay, now I get that bit. Oh, that was the significance of the thing on the backpack. Yeah. Like there, you know, there's
0: yeah. Like Dunkirk, Dunkirk is another one, like you watch it on a second and third viewing, and it's better because you now get it. But even in the first viewing, if you don't fully grasp that whole three different time things, it's still a movie you get and you can enjoy and, and like, whereas this one, I left being like, wow, that was kind of cool if I get what the fuck just happened, like, or I could yeah. be completely off here. Um, it, he is he is really neat with some of the technical stuff, like the one scene where um I always forget his name, Denzel Washington's son is fighting a character that's going in reverse. The way that they must have made that scene is amazing. Like, I can't imagine how difficult that was to do.
1: Yeah. No, there's no and doubting the And I appreciate the fact that. that. The, the, the craft work that goes into his movies is is undoubted. But yeah. yeah, I do feel like at times it's being smart for the sake of being smart. And it's it almost exists so that someone can as if, oh, you don't like Christopher Nolan movies? Uh, you know, just like, like people can judge you. Like, you must not be smart enough to like Christopher you don't Nolan get movies. It. Yeah. And like, yeah. If you understood it, you would think it was the best movie ever made. But you don't. Yeah. Like, and and, that and to I, me, yeah. That bothers me. That bothers me with anything. But it, it, with a movie, especially these aren't indie movies. If Christopher Nolan was making really small movies and it was like look you've got to be in memento (laughs) yeah but even smaller like he was like art house where he was just like look ten thousand people are gonna like this and that's cool because that's who i'm making this movie for but the fact that you're making blockbuster hits starring huge names with massive budgets and then you're going well yeah but you gotta be you gotta really really want to like this movie to to like it that that bothers me
0: and i have to imagine his director's cut must have been over three and a half hours because it is that was what the issue was to me it was so tight that you missed 10 seconds or weren't like fully paying attention and you've lost what's going to happen for the next 20 minutes so his his full movie must have been so long and had so much more and arguably i think this would have been a great mini series where you could have put like 10 hours into this And developed it and had it less, like, developed what was going on more so people could follow and it wasn't just crammed into two and a half hours. I think it would have made a really good, like, six, seven hour miniseries. I
1: think you could almost argue that if the entire season one was just explaining the skill, like the ability... And and the characters being super confused by it, and having them to really, because yeah, you have whatever is Denzel Washington's son not understanding it first, but it's a pretty p- quick pickup time, right? Like it's it's yeah, not a, yeah,
0: John David Washington,
1: yeah if you'd had almost an entire season of like, but I still don't get it. How does it work? Okay. It works like this. This is how it, here's some examples of it in the past. Like, remember this famous event? Well, this guy stopped it by yeah. doing this. Like if you really went through it that way and then you really understood it and then, okay, season two, final season. Now we're going to show you him in action. I, I agree with you as a TV show where you, where you can really
0: savor in all of those details. It yeah. probably you can be slow it down a little Yeah, because it was way too quick. And uh, it was two and a half hours, you know, like it's literally
1: (laughs) the movie acknowledges. It's confusing. Yeah. Hey, you're not, you don't understand this. You will in about 90 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's that's pretty much, that's pretty much the movie.
0: Yeah. But the, my only other comment on it is I don't know if John David Washington, who is Denzel's son, he definitely sounds like Denzel. Like the voice is similar, but I don't know if he purposely, has the same tone and emphasis because it was as if they were like hey you know how your dad does that thing where he like is kind of angry and loud but not really and and like is really like emphatic and certain like i want you to do that and he was like oh i've got you (laughs) you know like it was a little too close like if i close my eyes i usually have been like is that Denzel washington talking right now
1: (laughs) yeah it has to be tough as the son of a famous or daughter of a famous actor just to be in, put in the situation of, people probably want you to kind of play the role of your parent, but then the same time that you you are almost lose lose. If he's too close to it, it's like, oh, is he just doing an impression of his dad? But then if he's too distant, like, I don't even see any Denzel Washington in him. You know, like there's yeah. there's like because he doesn't look much like him. You know, like no, you don't, there's no striking it. there's no striking resemblance physically you can when you see them say you can be like oh, okay i can pick up on certain things but you don't see an image of him and go that's a young denzel washington so yeah. if he doesn't you're right if he doesn't do the voice thing i mean he's probably gonna have a movie eventually where he's gonna have to be like king kong ain't... <laughs> like he's gonna have to do that <laughs> but
0: kind. like that whole th- that whole delivery of how denzel does like scenes like that he was doing that in tenet and i don't know if if it's just natural. I mean, maybe that is natural. Maybe he was really around his father a lot and kind of developed the same well, speaking patterns. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah. for an actor, are you sure he's going to be gone a lot, right?
1: <laughs> you no, know, it isn't. I don't feel like I don't think I necessarily have a distinctive speech pattern. I don't think my parents do either and I don't think I have a speech pattern that is similar to my parents in any way, like there's not, but yeah, when you do have a parent like Denzel Washington, where it is very much like the impression of Denzel Washington, isn't almost even the sound of his voice. It is the delivery where like, if you have a parent like that, it would be hard to grow up with them and not be mimicking that in some respect.
0: Yeah. But I, I, because I'm a fan of Nolan, I will rewatch it and I'll see if that if it's any more enjoyable on a rewatch. Also, isn't
1: that a great move as a director or a producer being like, look, if you, if you want to like this, you better rewatch this. Like we will drive up either our box office numbers or our DVD sales or our streaming numbers. We're going to drive those because look, you're going to have to watch this five times just to understand it.
0: Yeah, I get that. But at the same time though, doesn't that make you a shittier actor? If you can't tell your story and have your audience understand it the first time, (laughs)
1: yeah i don't know if it's necessarily i think it's his fault more than it's the fault of the actors but yeah it's i hope the next movie he makes is less christopher nolan-ish
0: yeah and gets back to the better earlier ones he had because i'll tell you what i did watch in porto they had the movie channel there and they actually played the movies in english and the prestige was on and boy do i love that movie oh I, i love the prestige i love it so much I can watch it all day like and whenever it's on, I'll watch it. It's just wait. which one fir-
1: is the press is prestige Hugh Jackman
0: or is and and uh, Kristen Bell, Christian Cr- okay. Christian. And then Bell. the other
1: the other the other magic one is Edward the illusionist. I think that's, that's Edward called that's right? Edward Norton,
0: right? Yeah, not as good
1: because I, I mean, they came out in the same year,
0: didn't they? Yeah.
1: In my mind, they live in total tandem.
0: So yeah, but Christian Bell I, is so good in, in that movie great movie
1: yeah i don't know as someone who loves magic i didn't love either of those magic movies oh you should watch it again eddie i know you're not a rewatcher. give it another shot i bought both of them on dvd i have them somewhere (laughs) sitting
0: all right i guess with our little mini movie review we'll call it a day
1: yeah a review of movies that came out at least 12 months ago
0: (laughs) yeah except ambulance that was recent
1: not in a theater near you
0: no, the ambulance and Batman I think are still in theaters.
1: The Batman is not in
0: theaters. Okay. No well, the way. ambulance is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Ambulance might be. All right. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> See you.